Brothers and sisters, I greet you in the name of Lord Jesus and with his love, because his love is unchangeable. It doesn't matter how we might feel about it this morning. This is true that he loves us and loves us dearly. We are in our series on Romans chapter 8. Since you have your Bibles with you, please open Romans chapter 8, and our verses are 23 to 25. And as we continue with this theme of groaning for glory, last time we saw the creation groans and suffers, and today we look specifically at the sons of God, at the children of God, at the believers. What is our groaning all about? And if you look at this chapter, as we read together, verses 23 to 25, you'll see that it begins with, for we know that whole creation groans and suffers in pain of childbirth together until now. And verse 23 says, and not only this, not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruit of the spirit Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body, for in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly wait for it. This is our passage. And as any passage, we want to figure out what is the main thrust of the passage? What is the main idea of this passage? So we could apply it to our lives. We need to figure out what is Paul meant when he wrote these verses? Why did he wrote these verses as we read them? And are they applying to us? And if you look at these verses, there are three verses only. We see the word hope repeated five times. The word hope repeat four times in verse 24 alone. And I mentioned once in verse 25. And so we really want to put the finger on the passage. We see that Paul is dealing with our hope. We're right in the middle of the passage of Romans chapter 8, right in the middle of this chapter, that dealing with our sanctification and our justification. And so when we take a closer look, we see that Paul wants to instill the hope in us. Because we live in this fallen world where we need a lot of hope. And we live in this fallen body where we need a lot of hope. This fallen world, as we studied last Sunday, it suffers and groans and awaits the liberation from slavery to corruption. The whole universe, it's enslaved to corruption. The whole universe, it's enslaved to futility. It is sin, in a in sense, when the sin enters into the fabric of the universe, it went into the DNA of the universe, and all it does is just futile for God. It is useless, in a sense. It doesn't produce the glory of God. And as itself, it groans and suffers from this uselessness and pain. And it says in verse 22 that it's a 
pain of a childbirth together until now. It's not hard to see that the universe is suffering. I mean, everything around us is kind of dying. We're living in a dying world. Just look around you, open your eyes, and you will see that all kinds of sufferings around you. You'll see wars, abuse, manslaughter, thefts. Last week, I went to a police department to conduct some business, and I saw a thick book right on the, on the counter, and I look, and it says missing people with pictures, among whom I saw women, teenagers, few children, and my heart ached as I imagined the indescribable pain of those parents and those loved ones who, who are missing those people. And besides that, besides this pain, we were experienced sufferings in our personal life, broken relationship, emotional traumas, discouragement, you name it. The world that we live in, it just identified with sufferings. However, when we are going to the scripture, Paul wants us not to be discouraged, but to be encouraged in hope that this all is going to end. Those who are saved in Christ will live in hope because we must. For if we lose hope, we would be the most miserable people in all the planet. The suffering world is a result of sin that integrated into this fabric universe. But we has been given hope right in our hearts. And for Paul, hope is the big deal. He talks about hope a lot. Starting in chapter 5, if you flip with me back a little bit, chapter 5 of Romans, it's worth going there. It's just a few pages back. Paul is building up this hope. Starting in verse 2, he said, that we exalt in hope of the glory of God. You see, at the end of verse two, it says, we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And through the passage, verse three, he said, and not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, in our problems, in our sufferings, knowing that tribulations brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, what? Hope. Hope. Hope, verse 5, does not disappoint, he said. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. If you go a little bit further to chapter 12, verse 12 of Romans, flip it there, and you'll see that Paul is encouraging us to rejoice in hope. In the midst of the trials and tribulations, as we will see that we groan and suffering, he said, rejoice in hope. And we have this God of hope. Chapter 15, verse 13. This verse is worth to be highlighted, I would say. It says, now may the God of hope, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul wants us to take away from this passage that we must keep our eyes to the future glory so that we could endure through 
present sufferings in hope. As we go through life and things are going to get messy and bad, and it's going to get worse because before it's going to get better, it will going to get much, much worse. And he said, as you go through the life, you look in the future glory that God promised to you, and you will go and suffer in hope, and you will endure, and you will endure. So I want to construct our discussion this morning basically around two topics. Number one, believers are groaning, but we're groaning in suffering in hope. It's a big difference as the rest of the creation suffers. The rest of the creation has no hope. It will die. The skies will roll out as a scroll. The stars will fall down. But we have hope. Verse 23. Groaning in hope. And not only this, but we also, ourselves, having the first fruit of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. You know, this idea that Christians supposed to smile all the time and never groan and never suffer and just skips through life like the gazelle, you know, just enjoying the life and there should be no sufferings. And if you really, really believe and ask God, he will remove all the sufferings and all the pain from your body and you will be happy. You know, I've seen those people who preach this gospel, prosperity gospel, and they also get sick and die. But it's contrary to what scripture says. Scripture says that through many trials, through many sufferings, you must enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is just the natural for this world. And the reason why I say that, because in verse 23, he said not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruit of the spirit, we ourselves groan within ourselves. Groan within ourselves. It's an interesting word in Greek language. You know, Russian-speaking people will appreciate this word when I sound it out better than English-speaking in this particular case. Because you would know exactly what it means. Stenadzo. And it's Russian word close to that when you say, I stenayu. Stenadzo. This groan, this, the, the sigh on the inside, which is goes so deep because you've been concerned or distressed. Sometimes it's so silent that no, it's not visible to anybody, but you are so frustrated with the present life and the situation that you're in, that your heart aches and you sigh and you moan and you groan and you make this sound like, mm. Do you know what I'm talking about? I suspect that most of us have said at some point of your life these words, I want to go home. I want to go home to my father. I am so tired. I have no desire to do anything or to live on this life. I have no strength to go on. Come, Lord Jesus, come now, please. 
Have you experienced this groaning for another world? This is what Paul says and experience this frustration in chapter 7, verse 24. Look with me there. Chapter 7, verse 24, Paul is frustrated with his body and his situation so much that he said, wretched man that I am who will set me free from the body of this death. Do you feel the frustration? Do you feel the groan? But notice this groaning is not grumbling. It is not grumbling. It's, it's actually the very opposite of grumbling is diametrically opposing grumbling, even though they start with the same letter. Being upset is not sinful in itself. To express the frustration at the situation is not necessarily sinful. Going one step further and start blaming everybody. That's grumbling and that's sin. That's not what Paul is saying here. He said, we are frustrated with the situation and with our body so much and with the present world that we groan for another. I got upset yesterday. I was typing these notes for, on my computer. You know, we call this AI intelligent, artificial intelligence, but I tell you, this, this computer is stupid. It's not, it's not intelligent whatsoever. I was like, typing my notes for the sermon the Microsoft Word crashed, right? Apparently, the computer decided that this was the right time to do so. And so after punching a number of uh, keyboards and then trying to reboot and stuff, so I finally lost all what I've been typing. So it cost me another two hours to kind of rethink and just type it back. Now, I'm kind of, of course, I'm not blaming myself, not just to put, press the option of the out of save option, right? That's not my problem. But nevertheless, it cost me several hours to retype it. And I groan. It's like, why? Why? It's interesting that this groaning, it appears in Romans 8 in concerning the creation groaning and concerning believers groaning, and concerning the Holy Spirit is groaning. Verse 26 and 27, the Spirit is groaning too deep in ourselves. And if it would be sinful, then the Spirit would not be groaning. So what I'm saying is this groaning is natural expression of the frustration of the inner man with the present reality, seeking for new Jesus groaned, Mark 7, 34, Jesus with a deep sigh. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ifata, this means be open. Israel groaned. In Acts 7, 37, God hears Israel groans. He said, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans. And I have come down to rescue them. Come now and I will send you to Egypt. Second Corinthians 5, 4. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan. Because we're being burdened. Because we do not want to be unclosed, but to be closed so that this mortal will be swallowed up by life. So this groaning and sufferings is just part of your Christian life and experience. You know, this Christianity one-on-one. 
This is ordinary Christian living. As we live in this world and touch this world and, and live with ourselves, we groan within ourselves. So, are we growing? And you're not an exception. Every believer and every Christian groans. Now, look that Paul mentioned this several times that we ourselves growing within ourselves. And what I want to point out to you that the groaning is on the inside. And the groaning mostly, not with the situation and the, with the universal problem, but the groaning must be with our own problem. He says this, we ourselves groaning within ourselves about ourselves. Yes, there's something wrong with the universe, but there's something wrong with you. Something wrong with our unredeemed body that pulls us down constantly. Something wrong with the corruption of the world, but we must be more concerned that what is wrong with us. The problem is with us, and in fact, the whole world is waiting when we're gonna be fixed. The whole world is cheering and thinking, when are we going to be, when all the universe will be transformed and we're waiting for the sons of God will be adopted and redeemed completely. The real problem in the world is our problem of our unredeemed body. The problem is with us. Now, but I also want to notice who's groaning. Who exactly is doing this groaning? And when we zoom in, we'll see that this is the new man that lives on the inside, is frustrated with the men on the outside. Let's get it straight that groaning comes from the one who is born of the spirit. We who are in Christ are new creatures. The old has passed away. We are the one who've been justified and we're placed in Christ. We are the ones who are joyfully concurred to the law of God. We are the one who is holy on the inside and perfect and even glorified. This man on the inside loves God and he lives a new life according to the spirit and when he struggles to present himself to God completely. He has this body that constantly restrains him. Paul says elsewhere, he said, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live in the flesh, by faith in the Son of God I do that. You see, God says that I gave you by the Spirit new divine nature. You're a new spirit. Your soul is redeemed, is complete. There's nothing to be added to your soul. Your soul is perfect. You are partakers of divine nature, Peter said. And now this divine nature that you and I associate with, and this is who we are. We're not double uh, nature people. We are identifying with this nature of God, and we are the one who are redeemed in our souls. We have in this issue with this clothing, with our body. And when I'm talking about body, it's not talking about flesh and blood and bones. It includes your emotions, it includes your desires, it includes your struggles and behaviors. That thing must be put away in exchange. I like on this, mo- on this uh, 
And this verse, the commentary of, of John MacArthur, is, is really gold. This is really brilliant, really, really, really clear. He said this, because believers are, are already new creatures, possessing the divine nature, their souls are fit for heaven and eternal glory. The souls are fit. In our souls, when we die, we're going to go straight to heaven. They love God, they hate sin. And have holy longing for obedience to the word. But while on earth, they are kept in bondage by their mortal bodies. Which are sale corrupted by sin and its consequences. Christians are holy seed as were encased in unholy shell. Incarcerated in the prison of flesh and subjected to its weaknesses and imperfection. We therefore eagerly await an event that is divinely guarantees, but is not yet transpired, the redemption of our body. That's what we're longing for. And that is what our groaning is all about. You know, a groaning is not about that somebody betrayed me. The groaning is not about that somebody make me hurt. The groaning is that my body restrains me to live for God. You know, like John Stott in his commentary said, we just half saved now. We saved in the soul, but our bodies are going to die. We're not fully saved yet. And therefore we could say, yes, I've been saved completely in my soul, but I am being saved right now. And I will be saved when my body will be transformed and I'll be redeemed. So we'll touch about this groaning. And, and now let's look a little bit of why are we groaning? Why? I'll give you a few reasons. In verse 23 says, and not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit. We groan. You know, something has to do with the first fruits of the spirit that it causes us to groan. The spirit testifies to us that we're children of God, that we adopted by our father. But we're adopted only in the soul, not in the body. Body is not adopted. Body cannot enter into the holy presence of God. Otherwise, we'll be fried and zapped out out of existence. So we need to present with a new adopted and glorified body. And Paul says, look, this body is, is sold to sin. It is sold to sin. It is sold to bondage of sin in chapter 7. There's sin dwells in this body. Nothing good actually dwells in this flesh. And there's a different law that acting in my members of the body that is waging war against the law of my mind. I would say this body is not a good deal. It's a bad picture. And we have the struggle in our body with our mind and with our inner man and our glorified soul we have this battle between the flesh, something that we really wanted to do. We want to live for God, and yet our body restrains us. We want to serve others, but our body tells us that we need to serve ourselves. And that's the most of our lives. We're battling this, and we're serving God a little bit, but mostly we look at ourselves. 
But Paul says, having the first fruits of the spirit. What is that first fruit in you? I will tell you that it's not exactly the spirit in you because the spirit is not the fruit. There's something of the spirit is in you. And I'm saying this is the new life that you have. That you've been possessing new life that God gave you out of his life to your life as a deposit and say, look, as I redeemed your soul, like a first fruit, I will also come back and redeem your body. And in fact, I will guarantee that by placing my spirit in, in you, and the spirit saying, look, I give you birth in your soul. I will actually live with you until Jesus comes and I will change your body as well. That's a guarantee. And that's why Paul in Romans 8.30, he said, in a sense, we're already predestined, we're called, we're justified, and we're glorified. In one sense. But in another sense, we also will be justified and will be glorified when our body will be transformed. Now, the spirit of God dwells in us as a guarantee. Can you imagine for that moment when this first fruit, and you you experience this taste of the heavenly thing inside of you, but the culmination when the, the rest of the fruits would come from him and everything about you would be completely changed when this new life will have no boundaries to live for God. The spirit of God has given a new beginning to us. And for the very first time when you got saved, you have tasted the Lord. We say this, taste the Lord and see that he's good. And you know the taste. And we're waiting for that moment when Jesus returns and will transform us so that the taste buds would be exploding and we will taste the Lord even more. You know, he said the first fruits is like when you plant the apple tree and there's a first fruit comes out, that means that something is following. There's a harvest following after that, the same fruits. So the same work of the spirit that he did in us, he will produce in us later. Oh, what a moment that would be when our bodies would be glorified. Can you imagine that? Do you long for that? Sometimes my little one asks me, Dad, what we will be like when Jesus returns? Could we walk through the walls? Would we be able to fly? Would we get hurt? Would we get tired? Would we need to go to school? So many questions. And I said, some things I know, but I know it's going to be awesome. It's going to be very good. Because John told us in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. When he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. You see, we're groaning because we have experienced things of the Spirit. If you have never tasted, there's no war, there's no struggle. But you have tasted, and you want to get it more, but you can't. All you have right now is this mortal, weak bodies that it restrains you and will restrain you more and more as you go in life. 
I feel like this is the, the sermon for the older congregation. Right now, people say, well, I don't feel, you know, I'm not groaning. I'm just, I'm growing, you know. But I just want to whet your appetite for the body that is just completely spiritual and different. It's physiological, but it completely have different blood cells for the God. And the frustration is this. Maybe I'll give you two illustrations kind of to clarify this. Maybe to relate this concept by looking at the child when he start walking. I remember my firstborn, he went actually on his birthday. One year birthday. So for a year, he was sitting and crawling and observing how people do this. How they, they walk. And he couldn't get the courage to do so. But then he took few steps. It was very short few steps, but he did it. And then he fall back on his button. But he did it. But when you look at the child who stopped walking, all he knew to that, that moment is crawling. And you start walking, and his walking is very wobbly. It's very unsafe. You know, you're, you're like scared for him because he's just passing this, the sharp edges somewhere and just falls in. Why can't he walk? I mean, he has everything. He has the desire. He has the determination. Why is not walking really well? Because he has no muscles. His body is not obedient to his mind yet. He needs to practice. In a sense, this is who we are. We have this limited bodies that restrain in us for walking for the Lord. And that is the essence of your groaning. We're kind of stuck with our mortal, unreliable, weak bodies until Jesus comes because that's all we have now. Or maybe another illustration would be a little bit clearer. Try to imagine that you would try to live one day with the plastic hands. You know, there's mannequins in the Nordstrom. You know, they just stand there and, and just present the clothes. Imagine that you would take those hands and try to live your normal daily life. You drink coffee with it and you eat your bagel and you try to help other people. You drive. The chances are that you're going to hurt a lot of people with those hands, Right? more than you can help them. But this is the body that we have. It's kind of like that. It's a candy cup. The spirit is, is strong. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. And again, what I'm talking about the body is not talking about just flesh and bones. It's all your emotions and desires that goes into it. It strives. It wants something. It won't eat. It wants sex. It wants things. It's the body. And it's a constant battle that you try to navigate in this life and live a holy life for God. And you're like with this plastic hands, you just walk in. And it's like, at the, I'm telling you, if you would walk for a day, you would probably say, wretched man that I am, who would deliver me from these plastic hands? Like how John Calvin said, we creep along the ground slowly. We creep along the, our sanctification, brothers and sisters, it's slow, tedious process because we're restrained by this mortal, sinful, sold to bondage of slavery to sin, having principle of sin in us, bodies. 
Now, it would be weird for a Christian not to groan, isn't it? Like, it would be weird. It's like, no, actually, I don't want to change anything. I just want to, I just want to keep this body. I'm really impressed with it. I'm doing really well. But Paul says, no, for indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. As I said before, our souls are already fully redeemed and are fit for heaven, but our bodies are not. We have this fleshly old clothing. Sinful flesh is still corrupted and awaits for the redemption. And that's why we're crying out and say, redeem us, redeem this body. Our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our body of our humble state into conformity with his body of glory by the extension of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. I know in my heart, I have many desires. In my mind, I want to serve God, but when I start doing this, I get tired and I get bored and I get frustrated and often I just drop. That's why we wait in hope and we groan in hope that these things will come soon. Now, as way of the application, we are groaning in hope. I'll just close this section of the sermon by applying it. And I want to ask you a question. What is your groaning all about? Mostly, what, what are you groaning about? Is this this kind of groaning? Or is some kind of other groaning over your flesh? Is this spirit groaning in you? Or the flesh groans and grumbles? Sometimes I think that we, you know, we, we go so strong against this prosperity gospel preachers who preach like health, wealth, and prosperity for this life now. The faith movement that we have to believe and, and just cancel every sin and just cancel all the sufferings and we want to be removed. And we're going against them so hard. So, well, that's not a gospel at all. That's not what we preach. But I suspect that we, in our hearts, are secretly desiring the very same thing. We desire health, wealth, and prosperity for this body. Our prayers betraying us, brothers and sisters, are not, is not. When you pray about mostly, do you pray about the Lord Jesus come now? Can you give me a new body or can you restore this one? Are we meditating about heaven or our concern is about the next trip somewhere in Europe? You know, are we craving for the Lord's coming back or we say, well, not yet, Lord, because we haven't troubled the world yet. We need to do this and this and this body. Are we groaning because we're not useless, useful for God as we should be? Or are we groaning because we're not useful for ourselves? You see, we're preaching against this prosperity gospel, but ultimately desiring to be well in life here and now and not thinking about this what to come. Because I get so comfortable here on earth with my little bubble 
world. And so God sends trouble. He sends trouble to get my eyes towards heaven where he is. He said, this is not it. He wants me to groan for heavenly things. He wants me to rejoice about the hope that is found in God alone. He wants me to come to the end of myself so I can lean on him. He wants me to realize that although things will become much worse for me, the prospect of getting my new body is so glorious and that this deal of the suffering for a momentary, momentary affliction is so good. It's so good. You know, just imagine, just the thought, the exchange for temporal suffering here is eternal bliss. It's like eternal joy. In exchange for temporary struggle, we will gain unending glory in the presence of God. We should cry and say, well, that's not fair. This is not a fair deal. I mean, we can't get for such a small investment such a great price. And I said, well, I know. That's what I should think when I'm getting trouble when I'm suffering, when I'm suffering and growing because my body doesn't function well, I should say, man, this is a good deal. This is a great deal because I'm going to get far much more better than what I've invested here and suffer through. So brothers and sisters, keep your eyes on a future glory and you will endure the present sufferings with hope. The second part is verses 24 to 25. And it's not only that Christians are groaning and suffering and moaning in hope. We also must grow in hope. We must grow in hope. Look at verse 24 says, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. You know, this, this hope is, uh, we use it often in different structures and sentences, and we use hope all the time. Like I would say, you know, I'm really hoping that the Kings would win the season, right? The championship. Uh, that's a vain hope, I believe, right? I hope I'm wrong, right? But, I don't think they have, they stand in a chance. I, I just met a believer the other day, the Uber driver drove me and he, he was just like, went on and said, this year, this is it. They just have the best lay, the best players. They, they have everything, the best management, the best facility. That's why I, I hope you're right. But that hope is really fickle. I mean, especially about the Kings. But when we hope and Paul says we hope, it's, it's a different kind of hope. It's a, it's a hope that goes beyond visible. And the essence of the hope is that you cannot see it. Otherwise, it's not hope at all. Like Paul says, you, it's not hope at all if you see it. Like if I hope to get, you know, something from here, right? Or I hope to get, you know, this chair on this cup. Uh, I just go and grab it. I could say, I hope I'll get it, but then I go and get it. It's not a hope at all. Hope is something you don't see. The idea of hope is that means that we have confidence in the unseen reality. 
Now, people will say, that is crazy, that is not smart and not intelligent, but we trust in the written word because we cannot see God. All we could see him in the scripture. We have confidence in the word of God rather than just an invisible reality. Hope that is seen is not home. I like like G.K. Chesterton. He's an Anglican theologian. He said this, hope means hoping when things are hopeless. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is merely flattery or platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be strength. Something that you cannot see and it's out of reach and you can't do nothing about it. That is our hope. Our hope is in the king of the one who restored our souls in hope. In verse 24, he said, when we grow in hope, we're growing, uh, growing in confidence. Verse 24 says, for in hope we have been saved. This is what we know exactly. This is unseen reality. Nobody sees that, but we know that that we have confidence in our hope that we have been saved. And even though we have not received fully, we are confident that we will. Now we believe confidently in hope. A few passages from Hebrews, uh, book of Hebrews chapter six, we, we see that in the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable of his purpose, interposed with an oath. It's interesting that God promised to Abraham and people, so I'm gonna give you land. And all he gave to them is the promise. That's all. It says in Hebrews 11:39 39, it says, in all of these, Abraham, Gideon, Samuel, David, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. <laughs> All they had is oath. All they had is God who said, I will give it to you, but they have not received it. And yet they hoped the invisible in Hebrews eleven thirteen 13 says, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but haven't seen them and welcomed them from a distance and haven't confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be there, called their God. We're growing, growing in our hope when we trust in, in the promise of God. And all we have is promise. All we have. Whether you feel it or not, it doesn't matter. All you have is the promise of God that he will complete your redemption. But we're also growing and our hope when we're growing in anticipation. See, two times in this passage, in verse 23 says that we eagerly waiting. And verse 24 says that with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. And eagerly meaning standing on the tippy toes waiting. Just, I want, like your children, when you come home, they are just like, they're ready. They, they see when is going to come. When is this future glory is going to come? We are eagerly waiting for that. True hope wants to come to an end. True hope wants to come to an end. 
At some point, we should not have hope. Hope should be culminated and receiving what has been waiting for. You know this expression, I cut the bug. It's, uh, it's about when you got something, taste of it, that you want it more of it. You know, I don't know many sports today, but I do one thing. It's a rocket ball. You know, if you know what, I'm, what it is. Once a week we play. I used to have no passion like many of you. Like, rocket what? I know. Uh, but now I do. And I'm looking forward to it. Like, every week. Sometimes Ali just texts me. He's like, oh, I can't make it. And I give him thumbs up. But inside, I'm just like, man. He lost already. So I, today I have affection and I have the rocket, you know, special you know, tools and glove and gla- glasses and everything for it. And I'm waiting with anticipation for this to happen, right? Eagerly waiting for every week. But so many of us passion, have passion for something so much and eagerly waiting but not so much passion for the coming of Christ. And I'm talking about myself too. We say, well, if he comes, comes. You know, if he's not, not. We're not too eager in our hope to see the culmination of our body so that we could present ourselves and glorify God to full capacity. Look, the whole universe is on the tippy toes, waiting eagerly and anxiously, longing to see us to be completed. We are in the obstacles for the universe to be transformed. As I said before, the whole creation is cheering for us to be revealed as the sons of God. And sometimes I'm wondering, why are we not cheering about the same thing? Don't we want to be saved? Don't we want to be freed from this body of sin? Don't we want to be fully reflected the image of God? Don't we want to be exactly like Jesus? Just imagine about this glorious reality. When you receive the glorified bodies, when you will love God without any interruption, without any struggling and without any sin, when you could reflect your creator in your full capacity and not with your limited body, mind, and affections. When you could love others without selfish, bitter thoughts. When you can really forgive people and never dwell on the past sins. When you can be with your God without any restraint, without doctor's appointment, without getting sick, without getting tired, and without getting bored. I want that. When we read in Revelations, don't you want to cry together when you think and meditate on heaven, together with the spirit and the bride come? And let anyone who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take water and life without cost. Jesus says, I am coming quickly. And the church responded, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And so we're growing in our security, in our, in our formation of God's word and promises. We're growing in our anticipation, but we're also growing, growing in our patience. 
We're waiting. We're waiting. It says twice that we wait in eagerly, but we're waiting. We're in the section of life where we already, but not yet. We are in between the sufferings and the glory. And the correct Christian postures and attitude is waiting patiently. Waiting patiently. We see here with perseverance, we're waiting. We're perseverance. You know, I don't like waiting. I don't like waiting. No matter what kind of waiting it is, I just don't like waiting. I just don't like red lights when I drive. Yeah, I just don't, I don't like to be waiting in lines even at the happiest place on earth. I just don't like it. I don't like to be waiting the doctors or the dentist with open mouth waiting until, you know, anesthesia or when he's going to be available. I don't like waiting, but God tells us. He said, although I know that you're struggling here and you want to get a new glorified body and you want to be with God, you wait for now. Wait. Psalm 27, 14 says, wait for the Lord. And it includes that he's coming. That's what we're waiting. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Wait with perseverance. Wait is a fitting attitude. And the more we wait, the idea is the more we're going to suffer. And the more you're going to suffer, the more desire you have for another world. You know the saying, the darker the night, the brighter the star. The darker the sufferings, the brighter is the hope. And we believe that God allows the dark times so our hope will shine even brighter to cause us to long for another world, to long for another citizenship, which is from heaven, to long for another treasure where thieves do not break in and steal. And he said, you have this hope. And this hope is so strong, so strong. It's stronger than your sufferings. It is so bright. It is so powerful because it backed by God himself. And that you're going to go through perseverance. You're going to go through sufferings and you will not throw in the towel and you will remain steadfast and you will do the will of God and the word of God, no matter how weak you are. That's how strong this hope is. And he said, wait. Part of the waiting, you know, it's, is waiting on the Lord is realization that unless he does it, there's, doesn't matter what I do. You know, it doesn't matter how I feed my body and how I exercise my body. I can't get it to the glorified state. I just can't. It's on him and I have to wait patiently until he does it. Because he's my God who promised it. Brothers, sisters, I want to encourage you to stare often into heaven. To keep your eyes on heavenly things. Our prayer must be saturated with next world. 
You know, people say, oh, he's so heavenly minded that he's earthly no good. I, I think it's nonsense. I mean, I haven't seen anybody be saturated with heaven so much that he lay down on his couch and does nothing. I, I, I haven't seen, I tell you, the more you're saturated with this new life, with this new desire of the spirit, with things to come, with the glory, promised glory, the more you're motivated to do ministry here and now, even though you feels like you're doing this with the plastic arms. The hope that is in us is not an idle hope. It is an active hope. As Peter said, therefore prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What he's saying that you'll be active in your hope, waiting eagerly when Jesus comes and reveals you as the son of God. You know, we have hope. Sometimes uh, I read these illustrations for the sermon and James Delore, associate pastor of Second Baptist Church of Houston, he gave this illustration. He said, sometimes ago, I saw a picture of an old burned out mountain shack. If you go to Lake Tahoe, you will see some burned houses. And he says, all that remained was the chimney. The charred debris of what has been that family's sole possession is gone. In front of this destroyed home stood an old grandfather-looking man dressed only in his underclothes with a small boy clutching a pair of patched overalls. It was evident that the child was crying. Beneath the picture were the words which the artist felt the old man was speaking to the boy. There were simple words, yet they present a profound theology and philosophy of life. And those words were, harsh child, God ain't dead. He's not dead. That vivid picture of the burned out mountain shack, that old man, that weeping child, and those words, God ain't dead, kept running in my mind. Instead of being reminded of the despair of life, it has come to be a reminder of hope. I need reminders that there is hope in this world. In the midst of all of life's trouble and failures, I need mental picture to remind me that all is not lost as long as God is alive and in control of his word. I finish with the song that I just recently wrote few verses led by the spirit as his son walking by faith and not by sight promised inheritance with Christ I am secure in what I trust and like the nails to a cross my savior's body firmly fixed the love of God the weak assist I know in Christ I won't be lost amen father we pray that our eyes will be kept on the future glory that you have promised. We intrigued by it. We desire the culmination of redemption. And as we go through these trials and this life, oh, help us not to lose the sight of glory. 
we have hope that does not disappoint because it is rooted in the promises of the faithful God. And all we want to be glorified so that you may receive fullness of glory as you intended through us, a complete person to our glorified body, through our soul and spirit, for we belong to you. We trust in you and in hope. Christ's name, amen.